Hi, and welcome to the teachings of CoChurch. We want to grow in our relationship with Jesus and help you to do the same. We are passionate about real community, so please reach out to us and connect by visiting our website www.co-church.org or joining us in person every Sunday as we gather. We hope this talk is helpful. So this week I actually had the privilege of going to my daughter's school, my old school, um, my mum's old school, gosh, three generations there, and speaking at their Christian Arts Festival, which is pretty awesome that they facilitate that in, in, in the school, really grateful for it, and um, they gave me the theme, the theme was Anchored, and the key scripture was Hebrews 6 verse 19, which basically speaks about how um, we as Christians, as people of God, have this, um, what does it say, this certain hope, like a strong, unbreakable anchor holding our souls to God himself. It's a beautiful piece of scripture, and actually really deep, as the word often is, where you read it at face level, and you're like, man, that's beautiful, and then you go a little bit deep, and you're like, oh my gosh, there's this, and there's this, and there's this, this is what the word is like. It's why you can't stop reading it. You read it over and over again, and you can see different things every time, especially if you take that one verse and you read it in context of the chapter that it's in, um, which I'm actually going to do to you today, because as I read it in context from Hebrews 6 verse 13 down to 20, um, I just realized, oh my goodness, this is actually more than just speaking to my daughter's school this week. This is actually, Bev had asked if I would um, speak on this particular Sunday, and I was like, this is the message that I'm supposed to be bringing to you guys in context of the series that we are in, Blessed to Be a Blessing. So the scripture starts and it's actually talking about Abraham and how he is blessed. That very scripture that Bevan read to us off of our cards, our co-church cards, is actually from Genesis 12. And, um, and it's, it's, it's words, promise over Abraham's life. And then it continues on and we come to that no, verse 19 and then we finish with a guy called Melchizedek, who I don't know if you've ever heard of that guy. But um, there's some profound, profound stuff for us to take home today and apply to our lives as Abraham and Melchizedek cross paths and truth is just unleashed in this moment, okay? Not at face value, but we're going to just dig a little bit deeper in the time that we have. So let me read it to you. It is from Hebrews. The thing with Hebrews is... Um, like, just a side note here, I can't help but get a little bit distracted, is it's actually the most beautifully written, or maybe beautiful is not the right word, the most well-written piece of scripture in terms of it being written in Greek in our whole Bible, so the scholars say. And it's crazy because nobody even knows who wrote that book. The author is a mystery. People have been trying to solve since the second century. I personally think I'm just going to put it out there because, you know, one day when we're all in heaven together, and if I'm right, I'm going to be like, yes, I solved the mystery. But um, there is no solving the mystery, really. There's not enough evidence. But I personally think that the people who wrote the book of Hebrews are a couple called Aquila and, Pris and Priscilla. And they were this um, first century couple who found themselves actually as refugees in Corinth, which is in modern day Greece. We've actually been there and I feel like I threw out a couple of pictures because when we were on our travel in 2017, we landed in Athens and Corinth is about two hours drive or so away from, from um, Athens. We only had a day in Athens, but we jumped into a taxi and we drove ourselves out to Corinth just to see the ruins of this ancient, pretty significant city, which Paul stumbled across on his travels, actually not stumbled across, went after on purpose. Look how little the kids were, gosh, so cute. But this is ancient Corinth, strategic um, trade city in its time. 
And um, Paul went there with intention to plant a church as he did with his life right across Europe and Asia. It was his absolute mission in life. And when he was in Corinth, he bumped into this couple called Priscilla and Aquila who were refugees there because they were living at a time of Roman rule on the earth. There had just been this um, emperor by the name of Nero in about 64 AD. And basically that guy was actually not a great leader. like and um, didn't understand Christians and made some leadership faux pas and pretty much just used Christians as a scapegoat. And if you've ever watched the movie Gladiator, you've seen those scenes of the Colosseum back in Rome where they just chuck people in to fight for their lives and people watch like it was sport. It's crazy, hard to believe. If you've watched Hunger Games, it's like, yeah modern day, what was happening at this time. The thing is, it was the Christians who were often being chucked in there under Nero and again, another emperor that came along um, later on, Domitian. You might know Dion, be able to know how to to actually say that word. But anyway, Nero basically, um, yeah, was just having such a go at Christians that they were a scattered people. And it's crazy how God used it. Instead of Christians all just being in Jerusalem, suddenly there were Christians all over the world taking the message of Jesus. It's what God can always do with circumstance that is difficult. He can turn it around and he can use it for our good if we are strong enough and if we have enough in us to be able to recognize and just plow on in life, which this couple did. And they encounter Paul in Corinth and they um, they start, they have this tent making business, okay, to pay their way. Paul actually starts to work with them and um, they become friends and they plant a church in Corinth. It's where we get the book of Corinthians because they moved on from Corinth and then they went to Ephesus and they pretty much did it all again. And, um, and they wrote letters back to their friends, their church in Corinth. Incredible couple of books, actually, couple of letters. Those, um, those documents, those written documents, same as um, Ephesians, the letters that were written back to the church in Ephesus that they would have planted. But here's why I think Priscilla and Aquila wrote the book of Hebrews, because it was written around about their time. And Hebrews, we don't know who wrote it, but we do know who it's written to, because it's, it's written to the Hebrews. That's why it's called Hebrews. And Hebrews was just another word for the Jews at that time. But it was not all Jews. It was specifically the Jews, and to use the language, the biblical, biblical language, the Jews who had crossed over. And what they had crossed over into was their belief that they were no longer waiting for the Messiah. Messiah is just a Jewish word that means um, the promised deliverer of Israel because all through the Old Testament, it is like prophesied that somebody is coming. A Messiah, a promised deliverer of Israel is actually coming to deliver us. And they were in a place of waiting, the Jewish people. But the Hebrews, the Jewish people who had crossed over in their belief that they were no longer waiting, but that in fact the Messiah had come and he was Jesus, were now the Christian Jews who were having a rough time on the planet. It was actually easier to be a Jew that did not recognize Jesus. It was most of the leaders that didn't recognize him. And you know why they didn't? Because in their minds, they had built up so much of what Jesus or the Messiah was going to look like. They thought he was going to come riding into earth like on a war horse and just take down the Roman Empire and reestablish Israel as the superpower. But it's not what happened. Jesus came as a baby and um, he one-on-one encountered people like these guys, Jubs and Palani do, and he prayed for people. And he was the promised deliverer of Israel in that he freed people from the inside out. 
released people of the bondage that they were living under, released people of the physical bondages, you know, get up and walk, you who were paralyzed, and off you go. Now you can provide for your family. That's how Jesus did it, okay? Just different to what they thought he would do, and that's where you see the danger of where we create something in our minds of what things should be like, and then we can miss the very thing when it actually enters. We've got to be so careful with creating our own truth. We almost live in a time where this is what we do. We create our own truth, and then there's this going on that is truth, and we, and we miss it. Okay, that is what happened. But there were Hebrew people who had crossed over, and because of the times that they were living in, somebody, I believe, Priscilla and Aquila, wrote them a letter to encourage them wherever they were on the planet at that time. Don't let go of your faith. It is the unshakable anchor. It is the hope that you have. And the reason that we don't know who wrote it and why I think it's them is because as a woman, you could only do certain things at that time. Very different to being a 21st century woman. And so um, amongst all the list of people that scholars think it could have been who wrote that book, they're all men's names, but ah, Priscilla might not have attached her name because she was a woman. And she, wouldn't have, and she wouldn't have been allowed, essentially, to speak into people's lives in the way that she did. And she was married to Aquila, who was a teacher. And so I reckon she voiced it, and he scribed it. And when we get to heaven, we'll all go looking for them, okay? And this is what we ask them. And if I'm right, you all owe me a free coffee in heaven. But anyway, <laughs> here we go. Here is Hebrews. It's chapter 6. It's verse 13. You with me? Let's read it together. Okay, I'm reading from the message because I feel like it might be the easiest to grasp some really deep stuff going on here. When God made his promise to Abraham, this is the Hebrew writer speaking to the Hebrew people at this time of struggle, okay, and reminding them when God made his promise to Abraham, their ancestor, he backed it all the way, putting his own reputation on the line. He said, I promise that I'll bless you with everything I have. Bless and bless and bless. Abraham stuck it out and got everything that had been promised to him. Okay, he stuck it out. He didn't get it all in one hit, but he stuck it out in his life and he got every single thing that God promised him. He was blessed and blessed and blessed. When people make promises, they guarantee them by appeal to some authority above them so that if there's any question that they'll make good on the promise, the authority will back them up. Like I swear in so-and-so's name, you know, it's going to back up what you have to say. And when God wanted to guarantee his promises, he gave his word, a rock solid guarantee. God can't break his word. And because his word cannot change, the promise is likewise unchangeable. We, the writer of the Hebrew says, including herself, himself, in amongst these people who are being persecuted, we who have run for our very lives to God, have every reason to grab the promised hope with both hands and never let go. It's an unbreakable spiritual lifeline reaching past all appearances, right to the very presence of God, where Jesus, running on ahead of us, has taken up his permanent post as high priest for us in the order of Melchizedek. Now, there's some language in there that you might be like, oh, okay, what does that actually mean? Particularly talking about this guy called Mel Melchizedek, who we're on to like all kinds of mystery this morning here, like who wrote Hebrews, but also who is Melchizedek? Because some people 
believe that he was Jesus himself on the planet ahead of time, of his time. I don't know if I believe it. I haven't quite decided on that one yet, but he's definitely an interesting guy to look at. We don't know where he came from, and we don't know, he doesn't have any descendants. There's no lineage or genealogy attached to this guy, Melchizedek. I don't know if you've heard about him. You've probably heard more about Abraham because we have spoken a little bit about Abraham in the story of our church. Um, and so really this piece of scripture that I just read to you kind of starts with Abraham, finishes with Melchizedek, and I'm not gonna be able to unpack all of what we could unpack with these two guys, but what I am gonna do is take you to their crossroads. And then we're going to pull out five things that I honestly believe if you could take them and apply them to your life in this very day, you will see blessed upon blessed upon blessed to be a blessing happening in and through your life too. Okay, so Abraham, let's just start with him. We actually meet him in scripture in Genesis 11. Okay, first time we meet him. He's about 70 years old and he lives in this place called Ur, which is modern day Syria. Okay, but actually an incredible city, a capital city. I actually, um, let me just read to you what it was about, because I don't know if you think like when we go back in time that there was absolutely no civilization yet. It's not true, there was. Okay, Ur was a capital city in its time with over 100,000 residents. I got this from an article. Apparently a, a place of beauty and towers, palaces, temples, law courts, Market squares, statues, shrines, gardens, mosaics, friezes, reliefs, and monuments. You're not going to see that in um, uh, modern-day Syria. It's, it's just a whole lot of ruins today. But in its time, it was actually pretty spectacular. It was divided into rectangular blocks with paved streets lined with two-story houses. I mean, that is advanced building. It had its own seaport with man-made canals giving access to the Persian Gulf and Indian Ocean, opening it up to like lucrative foreign markets in Africa, India, Malaysia, and the Arabian Peninsula. Ur was in fact part of an empire ruled by a written code of law drawn up by a guy called King Hammurabi, who I don't know if any of you ever heard of him, but the guy was progressive in his thinking. Like he had some unbelievable justice thoughts and that's how they all lived in Ur. And then Terah, who is Abraham's dad, at aged 200, okay, they lived longer in those days. There's like a greenhouse effect going on in the world. And, um, and they lived longer, but I don't know if you've got any context of how long they lived, okay? 200 was old. It wasn't like they weren't living to 800 at this particular time. I mean, Terah ended up dying at aged 205. So he's right at the end of his life. He decides, let's move my family from Ur, this incredibly like built up city, and let's actually head for Canaan, which is modern day Israel, Syria at 200 years old. And he takes his son, Abraham, who's married to Sarah. They can't have kids at the time. So it's just the two of them and kind of their servants in their household. And also his grandson, Lot, who's Abraham's nephew because Abraham's brother had passed away. And Lot had almost been like absorbed in to Abraham and Sarah's family. It's like a surrogate son. And all of them up and they leave Ur and they start heading in what was in the direction of what was then called the Fertile Crescent, an incredible farming belt, okay? In this crescent shape, they start heading towards Canaan. They walk about 700 miles, just over a thousand kilometers, kind of the distance between here and almost into the middle of Mozambique. Like it's no 
short walk, okay? And they get to a place called Haran, and they settle down. I don't know why they settle there. Uh, maybe, um, maybe terror was feeling it. His 200-year-old body was just like, I can't keep going. But they actually settle there for a little while. And, um, and then Terah ends up dying there at the age of 205 years old. And at that point, God speaks to Abraham again. And he says to him, okay, up, I've, I've seen you. There's the story of the world going on where I started with Adam and Eve. And then I try to restart with Noah and his family. And the consequence of both is that there's just not faith and friendship with God on the earth. People are just just head for decline unless they keep that relationship with God going. I mean, in Ur, okay, where Abraham has come from, they were worshiping 500, over 500 different gods and goddesses at the time. It's like just debauchery starts to set in with humanity and God is like, man, how now am I gonna continue to not have heaven without people like we sang earlier today? It's like he didn't want heaven without us. Okay, and so he brought heaven down in the form of Jesus, but he's constantly trying to reach people. And he sees Abraham and he sees Abraham's faith. And he decides that this is a guy that he can work with. And so he calls him out and he says, okay, keep going, Abraham, continue on to Canaan, continue on to a land I am gonna show you because I'm actually gonna make a great nation out of you. I'm gonna be a God, you're gonna be my people, your descendants, which is like, what? God couldn't have kids. Is Jesus, like, is God crazy? But I'm gonna make a great nation out of you. Trust me. And again, Abraham ups with his whole family, with Lot and Toe, and all they head towards Canaan. They get to Canaan, and when they get to Canaan, um, there's a famine at a point. They settle there, modern-day Syria, um, and then there's a famine. And so they actually have to head to Egypt. They get as far as Egypt. They enter Egypt, and... Um, Sarah must have been beautiful because Abraham says to his wife, you need to tell people you're my sister because when we get into Egypt, they're gonna see how beautiful you are and they're gonna kill me to get you. And so this is what they do, they lie. They lie that she is his sister and she must have been that beautiful because Pharaoh's leaders actually take her and she goes into the palace to now be married to Pharaoh. Can you imagine this, guys, like in real day life? But God is, even with their lying, <laughs> is watching over them and protects Sarah's purity. And he actually causes this like intense illness to come on Pharaoh and his entire household. And when they realize that it's actually because of God, the God that Abraham serves, and actually Abraham is married to Sarah, and they've taken somebody else's wife to now get married to Pharaoh. They call Abraham in, and they're like, okay, they could have killed the guy at that point, but again, God's hand is over him, and they say, go back to where you came from. Take your wife and go back, and in the meantime, Abraham had actually racked up a whole lot of gifts as like being the brother of this beautiful person, and they don't take the gifts back. They send him on their way with all these gifts and back to Canaan. So off they go again. By the time Abraham finished walking, he had walked about like from here to the middle of Africa. It's how much walking he did in his life. That's why you always see him as this old man with like a walking stick, you know? But he was a little bit more than that, actually. I just might say, because it's important that we don't like just get these pictures in our mind and we don't know the full picture. They reckon that he would have actually been able to speak like four or five of the local languages. I mean, it's impressive, okay? They reckon he was a skilled writer and hunter and like a real haggler. 
they reckon that he was fiercely independent, but he had this one central quality about him, his faithfulness. And he loved one woman his whole life, and he loved one God his whole life. And it's why God sees him, and God calls him out and begins to use him. Okay, and so they get back to Canaan, and I kind of have to just, um, I realize I started a bit later, and I don't want to go on too late. So they get back to Canaan, and they are so blessed at this time in terms of what they have and the amount of livestock that they have that they cannot settle in one place. The land would not be able to sustain both him and Sarah and Lot and his entire household. And so at this point, they actually decide that they're going to go their separate ways. Not have a breakup in the relationship, just you settle here so the land can sustain you, and we're going to settle here. And Abraham says to his nephew, Lot, you choose. Which, which do you want? And Lot chooses the better, what looks better. But actually, he chooses this portion of land, which is um, next to a town called Sodom. And if you know this story, you would know that Sodom is an extremely wicked town, to the point that God actually, later on, has to destroy it, both Sodom and Gomorrah because they're just wicked. And Abraham chooses a different space, actually modern day Israel, and life starts to go on. Now what ends up happening, okay, is that there is this guy in the area, his name is King, I'm gonna call him King Ked because it's a really long name and just to shorten it, we'll just call him King Ked, okay. He's basically oppressing a whole community of people, been oppressing them for 12 to 13 years. They are now fed up, they actually rally together, okay, and decide that they are gonna fight back and they are going to not have to pay this guy anymore for what he's demanding from them. It's unnecessary. So a whole lot of communities ally together and they try and attack King Ked. And King Ked and his allies smash them. They honestly annihilate this, um, this war, this attempt on war. Within it, Sodom and a few other allies, Gomorrah, a few other allies, decide that this is their chance to also get on the action. Let them also try and have a go at King Ked. King Ked smashes them. And in that moment, Lot is taken as a prisoner of war. Lot, his whole household, and the word get, gets back to Abraham in Israel that um, Lot's been taken as a prisoner of war. And Abraham had no interest in this war, but now he did because of his nephew. And so he rallies only 318 men who are trained for war. He's obviously the one who's trained them. It's why we can't just think of Abraham as this old guy with a stick. Like the guy had trained these ninjas, 318 of them. And three other allies decide, we're going after this. I'm going to go and get my nephew back. And off they go. And they ambush King Ked and his allies and and, and take them down. It's like ridiculous. They are in the minority number-wise. They retrieve Lot, they retrieve all the possessions, and there's this incredible victory. Abraham is basically now like a war hero. And on his way back to his hometown, two people come and visit him, okay? He's being hailed a hero. He's retrieved all this wealth that has been stolen from them. He's on his way back. One of the guys that come out to meet him is the king of Sodom. His name is Bera, okay? Wicked town. And a seemingly nice guy when he comes and meets Abraham, but with absolute agenda going on underneath. And it's why we all need to be wise in life. And the other guy that comes to meet Abraham is this guy called Melchizedek, who I say, only features in this one place. He features again in Psalm 110 and then he features again in Hebrews because it's the Jewish people who know their stories, listening back, hearing back and remembering these stories. And it's what the Hebrew writer is trying to do. Rem let me just remind you, let me just remind you of our God, okay? 
And so Melchizedek comes out to meet Abraham. He, this word Melchizedek is actually a compound word. It means king of righteousness. Interesting. He's the king of Salem, which then became Jerusalem. And Salem means peace. So here the king of righteousness and the king of peace comes out to meet Abraham after his victory and on his way back home. And he comes to meet him with bread and wine. And he comes to essentially minister to the guy. This is why so many people want to study Melchizedek as this foreshadow of Jesus. He's also the high priest in the area. He's both a king and a priest. It's what our Jesus was. But we can't get distracted on that. We just need to stick to what we can take from this, this meeting. So there Melchizedek comes and he ministers to Abraham, and so too does King Bearer of Sodom come, and he also has an encounter with Abraham. King Sodom, the king of Sodom comes, and he says, "Abraham, you are the man! Like, oh my gosh, you took those guys down! It's unbelievable! He's buttering him up." And he says to him, "Please just return. Listen, you keep all the spoils of war, all of the stuff that you have stolen, basically wealth, livestock. This is what they would do in war." Abraham now rightfully owned. And so really, Sodom had no right to say, you keep it. It was Abraham's anyway. He was like, you keep all that. Would you just return the people to us? And um, I mean, it, was, it wasn't Bera's right to even give away what was no longer his. But just before Abraham had an encounter with Bera, he had had this encounter with Melchizedek. And Melchizedek came to him and said, to God be the glory. This wasn't in your own strength, in other words, that you won this war. This was because you were blessed always by God. God fought on your behalf. And they're sitting down with their bread and wine and they're remembering and they're giving glory to God as is God's to be given in this moment. And he says to him, um, he doesn't want anything from him, Melchizedek. He's actually the one bringing gifts. But what Abraham does in this moment is he actually gives a tenth of all the spoils to Melchizedek without prompt, but he gives a tithe to Melchizedek and they have this beautiful moment of ministry. But it's so interesting to me that in this moment, okay, where Abraham is a hero and can start to think, I am self-sufficient, I am the man, there are two voices that come and speak into his life. One saying, you are the man, like you are the man. And the other saying, to God be the glory. And Abraham in this moment has to choose which voice he's gonna side with. Is he gonna go with Bera? Yes, I am the man. Yes, let me keep all the stuff which was his to keep. You take the people. Oh, actually, I'm gonna side with Melchizedek in this moment. Because what Abraham ends up doing is something he actually didn't have to do, but obviously just reveals the kind of man that he was. That as soon as Bera said to him, you keep the stuff, it wasn't even Bera's to give, he did not want Bera to go away thinking that he in, or Sodom were the source of his blessing. He wanted everyone to know that the source of his blessing was God. And so do you know that Abraham kept nothing of those spoils, nothing. He left it. In that moment, as soon as Bera comes to him and just says, just give me the people, you keep all the stuff, appearing very nice, but an agenda. He's all, I want everybody to know that the source of my blessing in life, I have been blessed and blessed and blessed. And the source is God and God alone. Keep all the spoils. Yeah, I was mine to take, but let 
let that message go before. And here we go, Melchizedek, here's the tenth. He also didn't tell his allies that that's what they had to do. The allies actually ended up taking their spoils and in essence were blessed through Abraham massively by just partnering with Abraham, which was what was on Abraham's life, that he would be blessed to be a blessing. And I feel like um, maybe there'll have to just be a part two at some point because I found this incredible article where it basically just gave us some practical everyday stuff for you to take home. Maybe I'll take two minutes to blitz some of what it said because I feel like this is our take home, okay, from this story. This is our take home. Firstly, in this article, it's like five points of how you can learn and how you can apply Abraham, the core of who he was, okay, to your own life, to, to also be somebody that is blessed to be a blessing. All right, firstly, as descendants of Abraham, which we are in faith, spiritual descendants of Abraham, he is the father of faith. It just says, be a blessing to others. Abraham was a blessing to many. Like he freed the captives, including Lot. He brought prosperity to his allies in battle. And of course, he would be the father of Isaac. He still hasn't had a child at this point when he meets Melchizedek. It's not like he's gotten everything yet, but he what? He persevered and he did end up getting everything. And Isaac, this boy that he had, becomes the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. And so again, through Abraham's life, the whole world became blessed. And it says to us here, he has this challenge from this article. We need to actively seek ways in which we may be a blessing to others. It's what Abraham did. First and foremost, we will bless men by pointing them to Jesus. It's what Abraham did when he refused the spoils. He said, I will let people know that I am blessed because of God. Okay, the second thing that we can do is we can actually learn from Abraham that nothing can happen that will prevent the fulfillment of God's covenant promise to his people. Nothing. Like guys, his promise stands. If there's a promise over your life, you can bank your life on that promise. Abraham's sin when he lied about his wife, Sarah, okay, or his weakness, like him being too old and not actually being able to have a child, which he does end up having, and we're not going to get to that today. Like nothing Nothing was, um, or his attack from King Ked, like the bigger army, nothing prevented Abraham from receiving all that God promised he would receive. And you want to know why the people of Israel are still standing as a nation and why those other ancient um, nations are nowhere to be seen anymore. There are no more Assyrians in the world, even though they were the superpower back then. But Israel, through all it's been through, that land is theirs because of the promise of God. It's another story for another day. But thirdly, guys, we need to give God the glory for the victories he gives us, this article says. And we actually do it by giving the glory to God in worship, like what we did today. Abraham worshiped with Melchizedek. They took communion together. And we've got to give glory to God, like in, a, in public praise before men. Like if you have a victory, like tell people, oh my gosh, like this was God. God did this. And then you give, you give to God in the same way that it was just Abraham. No one told him to give, but he gives to Melchizedek of his increase. Okay, fourth thing, we should also practice separation from those wicked people who would appear to be a source of blessing to us. If our blessings come from God, then we need to look to God for those blessings. We don't need to cut corners legally or ethically. This is good stuff, guys. 
And we don't need to enter into alliances with those whose trust and whose values are contrary to God and his purposes. Like Abraham didn't need to side with King Berah of Sodom to be blessed. He didn't need that. He ended up being more than, more than blessed, siding with God. And then fifth and finally, we need to apply what we have learned in one experience with God to the other areas of our life. Like if God has done it for you before, he will do it for you again in Jesus' name. If you have seen victory in your life, it is the same God. The fact that it doesn't happen in the timing you think it should happen doesn't mean it's not going to happen because actually what ends up happening after this encounter with Melchizedek is Abraham has like a bit of a flip out about still not having an heir, anybody to inherit all this crazy blessing. He's like, God, <laughs> he flips out and God comes and ministers to him. And they have this series of dreams and it's amazing. And God just reiterates to him, just relax. You think your body's done for at a hundred and something years old and you cannot have children, but relax. That child is coming. The promise still stands. So if God has done something for you before and you are in the middle of the battle, then remember what he's done for you before and know that he can do it again. And we just have to rest oftentimes into his timing. I wanted to play you this really lovely song, but I won't. I'm going to finish with just praying over you and hoping and trusting that that little um, piece of scripture is able to speak into your circumstance and your life because there's actually so much in there. Go home and read Genesis 11 to Genesis 15 if you want to and just mull over it, meditate over it. And um, yeah, allow God to minister into your life and your circumstance, maybe later today or later on in this week. But Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. I thank you for how deep it is and how deep the story of the world is and how much there is for us to glean from your word and apply into our everyday lives. And so I pray that you would take what we spoke about just even in a moment this morning and make it stick. Like let it stick to our heart. And let it be something that would drive conviction in us as we walk our time on this planet. May we be people like Abraham of integrity, people that love one God our whole lives and are ready to just side with him every single time, knowing that his intention, your intention, Father, is to bless us so that we might be a blessing on this earth. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have any questions about today's teaching or anything else, please email us on hello at co-church.org or visit us on our website on www.co-church.org. We gather in person every Sunday here in Umshali on the north coast of KwaZulu-Natal and you are so welcome to join us.